Well, it's great to be with you again today, and uh, we're excited about that. Before I get into the message today, two things I want to touch on. Um, one is that um, just be praying for, um, we have a couple situations with missionaries that are, um, we just praying for God to, to work. One is a missionary that we are trying to get here. Um, he's actually technically not a missionary under IBM yet, but uh, he's trying to finish his uh, grad school, get an advanced degree, another advanced degree. Uh, we, we are planning for him. He's actually in the process of planning a church uh, just on the outskirts of Nairobi in a very, uh, just a place with great potential for a ministry, uh, but this is the second time trying to get a visa to get into the United States. And uh, if you are coming to the United States trying to do anything of ministry, uh, anything related to Christian work, uh, it is almost an entirely closed door right now. Uh, we have seen this all over the world where different ones, nationals coming to the state, coming, trying to get a visa, going to the U.S. Embassy, they tell them what they're gonna do. They say, no, you can't do that. No excuse, no reasons, no justification. Uh, Turn away. We have one missionary who's going to be a, her third time uh, trying to get a visa from India to, to get here to the States to accompany her husband, uh, who is one of our missionaries, and has been denied twice. Uh, this fellow Julius has been uh, denied uh, once. So pray for them. He has his appointment this week, this Friday. So uh, praying that he gets his, gets his approval. Uh, and it really takes it, it, it really takes the Lord's intervention to direct you to the right person who will give you the the okay. Um, the second thing is I encourage you to be back tonight. Uh, good to see you, uh, good attendance this morning. We all know we're supposed to study the Bible. We all know we're supposed to read our Bible. But most Christians would acknowledge that they don't get as much. They struggle with that. Uh, they don't feel like they're getting what they need to get from the Word of God, or they don't know what to do once they are, are, you know, when they sit down to read their Bible. So I'm going to give you just some very simple, practical helps tonight on how to read and how to study your Bible that I think, I hope, will be very, very helpful to you. Um, I, I'm going to give you a brief, brief summary or overview of what, if you were at International Baptist College and Seminary, you would be getting in a, like a one or two day seminar on how to study your Bible. Something we teach all of our students and it's something that I think will just be very practical, hopefully be very helpful to you uh, to help you study uh, the Word of God. So take your Bibles, speaking of our Bibles, take your Bibles and open them to the book of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to look in this chapter at a few verses that really talk about the importance of exchanging the values of this world uh, for that which is eternal. Exchanging the values of the world for that which is eternal, and that which is eternal is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to lose track of what is really important 
in life. Uh, why is it that believers, Christians, who have been saved by the grace of God and dwelt by the Spirit of God, who have an ongoing relationship with God, who created the heavens and the earth, who have a future of splendid joy through eternity, why do we get sidetracked with petty issues, concerns, complaints in this world that really have no lasting or eternal value? One reason could be that we, we living in this flesh, in our bodies, often fail to see the real values of the world, of this world, versus the values that the Lord says is really, are really important. We get our priorities wrong. Our value system is distorted. Our text this morning is the personal testimony of the Apostle Paul, uh, really about his conversion and about what transpired in his life when he came to Christ. There are at least, in the verses we're going to read this morning, well, in this chapter, there are, chapter 3, there are at least six times Paul uses the personal pronoun I, as well as me and my. Uh, he says in verses 3 that if anyone could boast of his personal uh, earthly attainments and spiritual pedigree, it would have been the Apostle Paul. He says, verse 4, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And then he goes through and gives his pedigree, Jewish pedigree. Circumcised the eighth day at the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. I mean, everything you needed to do to be an outstanding Jewish leader and highly respected, highly... Um, thought of righteous person in his day he had accomplished and no one could really compare with him but then he says in verse 7 but what things were gained to me they, these I have counted loss for Christ yet I indeed I also count all things loss he says in verse 8 for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul said all these things that were valuable to him, the things that he viewed as being the most important things in the world, he came to a point to realize that they were just rubbish. They were, they were trash. They were of no eternal value. What he is describing here, what Paul is giving here, I think is his personal testimony of the struggles that he endured personally when he came to Christ, and, and, and no doubt shortly after his, his coming to Christ. You know, when you read Acts chapter 9 of his conversion, Paul was saved on the road, of, on the road to Damascus. Paul had been persecuting the church. Paul was on his way there to bring havoc, further havoc to the church, and, and God stops him in his tracks. And when you read that, 
account in Acts chapter 9, it just, you get the impression that God just sort of zapped him and he came out this new creature. But Acts 9 gives us the outward appearance of what took place on his way to persecute Christians. And then what you're reading here is after he arose blind, was taken to the house of Ananias, where he, he received the Spirit of God, where he regained his sight, where he was baptized. I think he is describing here the inner struggle uh, that took place. He had no doubt heard, he no doubt had understood what Christians believed, but he had not yet turned of his, from his sin and put his trust in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. He was too proud. He was too wrapped up in his personal spiritual pedigree and accomplishments. Just like many people I have met through the years who are too good in their own eyes to submit to a crucified Savior. But when Paul met Christ that day, he understood the wonder of who Christ was. And compared to the glory of Christ and of his, his human accomplishments now reeked with the smell of rubbish or garbage. What was gained to Paul was now loss. And much of our growth in the Christian life is learning to let go of the rubbish that we instinctively want to hold on to from this life and pursue after the knowledge of Christ, to pursue after God, to get to know him and the power of his resurrection. You know, Jesus used a couple of parables in the, in the Gospels to, just to describe the importance, the value of our relationship with Christ. He, in, in Matthew 13, he, he described the man who found a treasure hidden in a field, and he sold all that he had to, to buy that field so that the treasure would be his. Or the merchant, he describes, who found one pearl of great price, who went and sold all that he had to buy it. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like, Jesus taught. The incomparable gain of knowing Christ makes everything else in life seem like garbage or trash, rubbish. Paul said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. That's why I would challenge you this morning with the thought that the greatest exchange you can make is by exchanging the values of this world for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to pursue that which is eternal, the knowledge of Christ. Why is this so hard for us? Why is it so hard for us to, to pursue uh, Christ, to, to let go of the things of this world, to, to let go of what we think oftentimes this world is so valuable when we know it's all going to pass away? for that which is eternal, which will never pass away. We need to pursue Christ. We need to pursue the knowledge of Christ. We need to seek to know him, to know of him, to understand him. And I think it comes down to two things, perhaps. I mean, I'm simplifying it, I realize. But we don't really understand the, the nature of, of the values of this world, how, how just passing and temporal and, 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 and really, from an eternity standpoint, how useless are many of the things in this world. And then we don't, secondly, we don't understand how valuable the knowledge of Christ really is. So I want to challenge you with those two things this morning from this passage. I think, I think Paul goes into some detail here that I think will be helpful for us. Beginning again at verse 7. 
It's where we're going to focus this morning, verses 7 through 11. He says, What things were gained to me, those I have counted loss for Christ. What were the things that were gained to him? What is, what is really the world's values? We, we need to think about that. We, sometimes we, we pursue things, and we really don't think about what we are spending our time and effort to pursue. You know, the old adage of the man who spends his life climbing the, the corporate ladder only to find out the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Uh, a lot of people spend their life pursuing that which really does not have any lasting value. And they get to the end of their life and they're very frustrated because I've, I feel like I've wasted my life. We need to understand the nature of the world's values. You know, most of the things the world values are things that are, are visible in this world. Uh, not necessarily always visible, but they may be arrived at, they may be seen, they may be indicated by that. Something we see, something we feel, something we can touch. It's a profit. What does it profit me? You know, we understand profit. That you, you buy and sell something. If you, if you sell, you get more money than that. You, you paid for it. That, that's profit. What does it profit you? Could the things people think are valuable are things like status, prestige, uh, money, power. Paul had all these things in his profit column. And this is what he was, his confidence was in for his salvation. I am a good Jew. I'm a righteous man. I keep the law. I do this. I'm highly respected. I am all these things. But when he was confronted with Christ, he saw the utter worthlessness of all this all the man-made righteousness. And like God told Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, he, Paul realized that all of his righteousness was as filthy rags. And now he's ready to take all these things he once trusted in to throw them away, uh, to put them in a large garbage bag and, and, and take, take them to the dump. The world's values are also very temporal meaning that they're not, gonna, they're not eternal. Uh, now, no, there's not often many, many of the things that the world values, there's not anything wrong with. It's not wrong to, uh, to be wealthy. It's not wrong to have prestige or to have, a, have influence. Uh, it, it's not wrong to be a person of honor and to be a person who, who is respected. But none of those things are eternal. None of those things will last. Uh, none of those things are going to do you much good when you're lying on your deathbed getting ready to enter into eternity. And, and, and the only thing that you can look back to and hope on is, well, I've got a big bank account. I can leave a lot to my, to my kids. I can leave a lot, you know. Or, you know, Mike, I have the nicest car on the block. Um, that's not going to be of great value to you at that point. None of these things contributes to your standing before God, your relationship with God. All these things will pass away. We looked at actually a text a few weeks ago in which we were talking about how that everything we have, we're, we're going to leave. And we're going to leave it to others behind us. In light of that, the world's values are rubbish, Paul is saying. That is, in the sense of their eternal worth. 
the rubbish. Not something we really want to hang on to, not something we consider to be that valuable. Jesus asked the question, what will a man give for his soul? What is there of more value than that which is eternal, that which is in Christ? You know, part of Paul's struggle was that to his society, there was nothing anyone could accuse him of. He says here um, in verse 6, the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul said, I, 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 by men's standard of righteousness, he was outwardly blameless before the law. That's what made his salvation so miraculous. You know, false religion blinds the soul. Religious activity oftentimes gives people a false sense of security. Human works, whatever form they take, steadily suggests that I'm good enough to earn God's favor. Those of you who've been saved and shared the gospel with people enough through the years, let me ask you a question. Who are the hardest people to reach? Someone who is a wicked sinner, impacted by drugs, alcohol, wicked life, living, his life is in shambles, maybe living homelessly on the street because of the result of all of his sin, or the religious teacher who prides himself on his religious devotion. I will tell you, hands down, the hardest person to reach is that person involved in, in religion, that false religious person. Why? Because he doesn't realize his need. He has satisfied his conscience. He's soothed his conscience by, by his efforts, by his work, by his religious practice, by his superstitions. I ask you, what about you? Where's your hope? What's your trust in this morning? Are you trying to get to heaven by your good works? Uh, this past year, I was at a church, and I was talking to this couple afterwards. They had a, like a potluck after the service, and there was a couple I was talking to. The man had just recently come to Christ. He was just really, I think, only a couple months uh, a new Christian. His wife was Buddhist. And um, it was interesting. She saw a difference in him. And she, was, she came to church that morning because she couldn't quite understand what was going on in her husband's life. And that he had been so changed, so transformed. And so we, we had a, a good, honest open discussion and uh, she said, she said I, I'm Buddhist she says and, and we believe that your good works and your bad works are put on a scale and that the good if the good outweighs the bad then you can be rewarded I mean this is almost exactly her words and so I began to probe her a little bit and say well how many good works do you have to do and after some discussion, she came to a figure of 70%. I have no idea why 70%, but 70%. I said, well, how do you de define a good work? She couldn't really define a good work too well either. It's just, I guess you're supposed to know. And so as we talked about that, I said, well, you don't really have any confidence, any hope for eternity, do you? And she admitted, no, she did not. Because when you really understand, even if it was 70%, I mean, how, how do you figure that out? How would you know? And, and, and the truth is that it's not 70%, it's nothing, zero, what we can do. 
that is a that will earn our salvation. All we do in the flesh is worthless. That's what Paul is saying here. So if that's the world's values, and, and those are lost, those really are not that which is of eternal value, what does it mean to, to have God's values? And, and we need to consider not just the world's values, but we need to consider then what does it mean what does it look like to consider the gain of knowing Christ? We talk a lot about knowing Christ. You hear that phrase, you know, you need to know Christ. You need to know, do you know Christ as your Savior? Someone will ask. Well, what does it mean to know Christ? Paul touches on it here. He says, first of all, that really it infers a saving relationship. He says, I count all things but loss, but for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, in whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Gain Christ in him. The, the idea of knowing Christ is the idea of understanding and having a relationship with him. It's, it, it infers the saving relationship, being in Christ, in Christ in you, gaining Christ, having Christ as my Savior, as my Lord. He, in verse 8, he, he begins really a string of, of about five little particles that are translated differently in almost every version. And uh, they're translated as, uh, indeed, verse 8, uh, at the end of verse 8, that... I may gain Christ. Uh, verse 9, that which is through faith. Verse 10, that I may know him. Verse 11, if... It, it, the way it's structured grammatically is almost like sometimes when you're trying to describe something and you can't just quite get to the right word, this is, a, this is actually a, a fairly difficult passage to translate from the original because it's the language here just kind of broken up. Because he's trying to, to find the right word that, that would describe the wonders of, of the knowledge of Christ. How do you describe it? Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is basic to Christianity. Jesus said, I know my sheep and they know me. In this high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus said, this is eternal life. Oh, I get our attention. This is eternal life. What? That they may know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast. That's eternal life, is knowing Christ is eternal life. 1 John 5.20, John says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. And of course, Jesus at the last day, judgment tells those at the great white throne judgment, depart from me, for I never knew you. It's interesting, the word know here, the Greek word gnosis, to the pagan world at that time was used to describe some type of elevated, secretive, cultic, mystical apprehension or communion with the deity. It was used to describe some really deep, mysterious knowledge. 
Many of their drunken feasts supposedly led to this mystical communion uh, with whatever deity they were worshiping. It's the reasoning behind the use of tongues as an ecstatic form of speech or prayer. It's still true today with special gurus or occultic religionists who teach some type of mystical, transcendent knowledge of deity. Let me tell you, if you ever see an offer to go visit some guru in India who's going to impart to you the secrets of life, um, find where to run. Go the opposite direction, okay? Uh, I, I find it amazing that these wealthy movie stars and, and people you know, with more money than they know what to do with will pay vast sums of money for a special audience with some Indian guru who will sit there on the floor cross-legged and, and tell you some ridiculous thing about life. Um, and you look at, the, you look at what, that society, what that has led to their society. Uh, there's no great wisdom there, let me tell you that, okay? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. There's no great wisdom here. It's like I was, I was telling you the story about the lady who was bowing down before this tree because supposedly that tree was a goddess who fell from heaven and, and came down from heaven to bless that neighborhood. And she's praying to this tree, and I'm looking around thinking, this goddess didn't do a very good job of blessing this neighborhood. It's, it's a shambles, okay? There, the search of the unsaved heart and mind to try to find some deeper understanding, some deeper knowledge, some profound truth um, because they've rejected the truth and their life is empty. In the Bible, the, 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 the New Testament translates the Old Testament word uh, as uh, and expresses a, a bond of love. Adam knew his wife. God says in Amos 3, 2, Israel I have known. It's describing a bond of love, a relationship. So when he talks about knowing Christ, he's talking about a relationship with Christ. Years ago, a Bible commentator, Bible teacher, F.B. Meyer wrote, we may know him personally, intimately, face to face. Christ does not live back in the centuries nor amid the clouds of heaven. He is near us. He is with us. He is compassing our path and our lying down and acquainted with all our ways. But you cannot know him in this life except through the illumination and teaching of the Holy Spirit. We must know Christ in the valley, in the battles, in the time of victories. But Paul says it is gain to Christ. To know him is gain, to be found in him. Our identity is in Christ. He says in, in Galatians, or that or Colossians, for me to live is Christ, uh, to die is gain. In this epistle, the book of Philippians, or no, excuse me, in, in all his epistles, Paul uses the expression in Christ 164 times. There's, there is deep knowledge of Christ that is found in him, and it's, it's the relationship we have with Christ. He is not just some thing out there, just some distant personage in the past, but when we know Christ, it's a very personal thing, to know him. And then to know Christ, secondly, is not just confers our saving relationship with him, but it refers uh, to uh, our righteousness, to have the righteousness of Christ. Knowing Christ is to have the righteousness of Christ. He says, not my own righteousness, not being found, verse 9, in 
I being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul says to know Christ is to have the righteousness of Christ. Not that which comes from the law, not that which is just, just as outwardly or going through some ritual or keeping up of, of following the law, but it comes through faith in Christ. It's, it's a righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's given to us through faith. It's a treasure beyond anything this world can offer. He's talking about here the imputed righteousness of Christ that we are given when we respond to God in faith. He imputes to us, he credits to us his righteousness. It's why you and I as a Christian can have access to the Father of God in prayer. Why we don't have to go through a human mediator. You don't have to go in, sit in a booth behind a curtain and confess our sin to some priest sitting behind the curtain who will then supposedly go to God on our behalf. We go immediately to Christ. We have access to him. Why? Because of the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us. Paul had spent his entire life trying to keep the thousands of laws the Pharisees had added to the scripture. If any of you have ever gone to Israel, you know, you would know the extremes uh, that some of the Jewish people go to in order to, to earn right, righteousness. Uh, heaven forbid if you're in, a, in the top floor of a big hotel on the Sabbath day in Israel. Now, our hotel, fortunately, had six elevators. Uh, one of them was dedicated to Sabbat, to, to keeping the Jewish law. So if you accidentally, and it happened to several of us in our group when we were over there, mistakenly getting on the Sabbat elevator, it stops at every floor. And if you're on the 14th floor, it's going to take you a while to get there because their interpretation of Jewish law was that at every you could only go so far, so it had to stop, there had to be a rest, and then it goes on to the next floor, and it stops and rests, and you go on to the next floor. and stop. I don't know. We didn't figure out how long it would take to actually get to the top, but it, it would take you a while. Um, the, the extreme that many of these dear folks go to to try to earn the favor of God, to appease God through the keeping of the law, thereby earning their own righteousness, just is incredulous. But we have his imputed righteousness given to us through faith. Not our own works, but the righteousness of God through faith in him. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are found in Christ. It is his robes for mine. Uh, trying to earn our own righteousness is a very testing, trying way to live. It's also a way of endless guilt. So knowing Christ means being able to have uh, the righteousness of Christ. Knowing Christ is also to know the power of his resurrection. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. The power of his resurrection. We are raised from death into life. Ephesians 2.1 says, you who are dead in trespasses and sins have been raised or been made alive together in Christ. 
the sin problem that you could never defeat in the flesh is nailed to the cross. And the power that raised up Christ will also raise us up at the last day. I, I can have the dynamic spiritual energy to serve God. Daniel 11 speaks of those who know their God shall do great exploits, great deeds, great actions. There is a power to witness. There's a power through prayer to move mountains. There's a power to overcome sin and its temptations. Colossians 1.11, Paul prays that we might increase in the knowledge of God and be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. The only way you and I can live a fruitful life is by the power of Jesus Christ flowing in and through me. Jesus said he intends for us to go forth and bear much fruit. How do we do that? We do it by having, knowing the power of his resurrection. Knowing Christ also means uh, sharing in the fellowship with him. Knowing Christ is not, again, it's not just some mystical thing that's in the past that took place, you know, the death, the resurrection, all that's just something in, in the ancient past. It, it's, it means having daily fellowship with Christ, specifically fellowshipping with him in our sufferings. If you've gone through trial, heartache, difficulty, you understand what it is to have the comfort that Christ gives and the strength. God doesn't take away our sorrows. We live in this world. We're going to be, have sorrows in this life as long as we live, but we sorrow not as others who have no hope. Having his comfort, having the peace and the relationship with Christ, knowing that he is there with you, he speaks of having fellowship with Christ in his death, his salvation. Uh, he, he could share his suffering with the one who had suffered all. Christ was someone he could go to in times of need. And any Christian who has lived long with Christ will tell you the times of deepest suffering are sometimes the times where we, we know the greatest communion and fellowship with Christ. Because he knows what we're going through. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says he is a merciful and faithful high priest in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to come to our aid to all those who are tempted. Christ was mocked. He was despised. He was rejected. Paul had to learn that, he says, in his weakness, he is made strong. You know, Paul said in, in, in the epistles, he says, three times I asked Christ to, or God to remove uh, this stumbling block, this, this infirmity from me. But he said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Why? Because when we know Christ, we know what it is to have fellowship with him. I hope you've experienced fellowship with Christ as you are in his word, as you are walking in obedience to him. Uh, there's great comfort from beginning your days in the word of God and, and seeing God teach you something from his word and, and then seeing God answer prayer and, and just knowing as you go through your day that, that Christ is with you, that he, he's not just some far distant person you know, being out there in the universe, but he is there. He lives within you. You are in Christ. He is in you. That's what Paul's talking about. It makes everything else in this world seem just futile. It is to know Christ. And then finally, not only do we enjoy fellowship with him, but knowing Christ means that we are going to ultimately be glorified with Christ. I was talking about here the, 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 the 
resurrection of our eternal body. Notice what he says in, in verse 11. He says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's an interesting phrase Paul uses, if by any means. It almost sounds like he's a little uncertain about this. But we know from other scripture he's not, he's not being uncertain. He's very dogmatic. I think Paul is really just being humble at this point. I think he is still amazed that God would save a sinner like him, as we all should be, and that one day our bodies shall be raised from the dead. When we think about what you and I have in Christ, what it means to be in Christ, to have salvation, to have a saving relationship with Christ, to, be, uh, to have his righteousness imputed to us, to have the power of the resurrection active and alive in our lives, to have fellowship with him, and then to know that ultimately we will be glorified with Christ. I mean, who are we to be given such blessing? I mean, there's nothing that we have done that is deserving of that. God and his mercy, and, 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 you know, sometimes maybe we have to, to, as we would say, pinch ourselves to make sure that, you know, we're not just dreaming this. This is reality. We, we are going to be conformed into his image. We are going to be glorified someday with him and live with him forever. As much as we have enjoyed living with Christ in this world, someday we're going to be given a resurrection body Revelations 21 and 22 speaks of the new heavens and the new earth, our eternal home. Paul talked about here in verse 20, a little bit later, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Paul looked forward to the redemption of his body, to be released from the groaning of this present world. That is our hope. That's our future. And yet we think, we're so undeserving. That's why he says that, that if by any means, it's, it's, he's not doubting the fact that this is going to happen, but it's, it's hard to just understand and to assume that God's going to do this for us. That, that is so amazing. Therefore, he says, I count all things but loss and pursue the surpassing knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul said elsewhere, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, that's my life in Christ. I wonder this morning, what are you pursuing in life? What are the priorities of your life? I mean, if, if someone were, were just to have come in today and ask you as you were coming in, ask you to fill out a form, what's the top several priorities of your life? What would you have said? Probably as many of us that probably would have just, you know, my family, uh, my, you know, whatever, my job to be successful, 
uh, have the things I needed through life. I mean, there would probably been many things that were, were tangible, physical things that the world values. It's what we're surrounded by. It's what we're influenced by, what we hear, what we're bombarded with day after day in this world. But as a believer, the priority ought to be our pursuit of Christ, to know him. That's what Paul said. That's my priority, to know him, to know him, which involves what we've talked about here, the saving relationship, changed life, righteousness, fellowship with him, ultimate glorification of our bodies. We need to be men and women who pursue after the knowledge of Christ, pursuing after Christ. It, it will transform our values. It will transform how we live. It will, trans, it will transform elements of our, of our life. Rather than pursuing fool's gold of this world, pursue the true riches of Christ. And, and, the, and the glorious thing is, is it's, this transformation does not take place by just trying to keep a list of rules or by following some type of methodology. It's just our hearts need to seek after him. We need to be pursuing him. Ask God to give us a hunger for him, for his word. There's something about being in his word. You know, you, you get hungry for, to know God, you get into his word. You get into his word and really start to understand his word, you begin to grow more in your hunger for God. Then you want to get more into his word. Grow more. It's a never-ending cycle, pursuing after Christ. I, I personally think, and this is my opinion, okay, I personally think that when a people, when, when a body of believers are earnestly serious about pursuing Christ, I think it becomes noticeable to everyone. Um, I've had the privilege since we were here 20 years ago, uh, 15, almost 15 years ago, not 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, whatever it is, to have visited a lot of churches all around the world. I've seen the good, bad, and the ugly. Okay, so most of it has been good. Most of it has been good. I remember a church we went to. Les and I walked out, and we just said, like, wow, that was just a great church. And, and, I, and I thought back on that. Now, why? Why, did they, why were we so impressed with that? Well, I'll tell you why, I think. From, from the moment I entered in the church, I, I met a man I was there a little bit early. There was only one or two people around. And just immediately started talking to this man. And he was just wanting to share with me how great the Lord was. What the Lord had taught him that day. I, I, I read this in the scripture today. This is amazing. And we had this conversation. And honestly, I have been to places and talked with people where sometimes you talk to someone like that and it comes across as being fake. Like this guy is just trying to put on something, you know. And, and it just doesn't... I was like, okay. And then someone else came up. And it was the same conversations that were going on all morning before, before the service. And then afterwards, they had a uh, potluck. Seemed like all the churches I go to end up having potlucks. But uh, this one, not all do. But this one did again, a potluck after the service. And uh, I met the guy's kids. They all were adult children. And they all were busy. I mean, they had good, respectable jobs, but they're all the same way. They're all there in the church, and they're all talking the same, you know, you know, the Lord taught me this this week. I mean, they're just talking about the Lord. There was just such a joy. And I came away thinking, this is a church that really, where the people are really pursuing after God. 
not a perfect church, I'm sure, by any means. If I spent time there, I'd find some problems there. I'm sure I'd find some people who weren't all quite as saintly as, they, as maybe they sounded and start digging underneath a little bit. But it was a people who, was pers- who were pursuing God. This church will never be perfect. Okay, Perfection is something you, we don't pursue because, I mean, ultimately we'll be perfect when we stand before the Lord, but not until then, okay? But the one thing we can do is that we can pursue after God. We can pursue the knowledge of him. To know him can become our priority. It can become the burden of our life, the desire of our our life, to know Christ. What does it mean to know Christ? I need to be in his word. I need to obey him. I need to find out what he wants. I I need to start structuring my life around his word and let his word be the guide to my life. To know him and the power of his resurrection. I pray that for this church. I pray that each of us will be individuals who will pursue after God. Pursue him to know him. Pursue him through his word. Pursue a deeper relationship with him that we might know him and the power of his resurrection. And as a result, we will be transformed. We'll be transformed people and we'll be a transformed church.